This is a re-recording of a talk on guidance due to problems recording the first time. So let me start first of all with a disclaimer. This talk is based on a seminar that I gave 12 years ago, which in turn was based on this book, Guidance and the Voice of God. The content of this talk is very much based on the content of this book. I don't do that very often, but tonight we will. I found the contents of this book life-changing and liberating uh, when I first read it, so hopefully the same will be true for you too. Guidance is a subject that affects us all. Some of us are at the stage where we're wondering, what job should I do? Who should I marry? Some of us are still to get there. Others are at the stage of, should I go for that from promotion? Should I have another child? Should I move to a bigger house? Others are at the stage of, what should I do in my retirement? What if he or she needs extra care? How can I be of use to God in my older age? When I was a young Christian, I was taught that God had an amazing plan for my life. The amazing plan, normally when you talk to people, was usually something that involved, ended up being a Christian missionary doctor somewhere in an unreached tribe in Papua New Guinea. Now that very rarely ever works out, does it? I know one person uh, that happened for, but uh, for most of us, it doesn't, does it? But does that mean that we've missed out on God's will for our life? You know, uh, you were going to be that, but then you picked the wrong GCSEs at school. So it goes to plan B. Maybe you'll now be the next Billy Graham for your own country. Well, but you missed out on that plan because of the woman that you were supposed to marry that you didn't marry. You didn't marry your Ruth Graham who supported you all the way through. So you won't be the next Billy Graham. So it's on to plan C. Well, eventually you get down to plan quadruple X, don't you? Where you were a retired bin man in Bingley, wondering what you could have been if only you'd known the Lord's will. I want to tell you passionately, emphatically, this evening, that that is not how the Lord's will works. And if you are a bin man in Bingley, you've not messed up God's will for your life. So let's start off with some big picture stuff. Our plan, uh, sorry, God's plan and our part. God's plan and our part. In Ephesians chapter 1, all the way through to chapter 3, which we, uh, chapter 2, which we had read earlier, we see two big things, don't we? We see God's plan. What does God want in that section in the beginning of Ephesians? Well, we see it answered here, don't we? God's big plan for the world is revealed. It's not a secret. God has shown us what he wants for this world. We just might not think about it as guidance. But as we start to think about the subject, we need to get our heads around first uh, what this means here before we get into the nitty-gritty issues. We will get there, but we need to understand this first. What is God's ultimate goal for everything, our lives included, in verse 10? It's to bring all things under Christ. What God wants, what he's working towards, is bringing all things under one head, Jesus Christ. He's bringing everything together under Jesus, enthroning him as Lord of everything. That's what God is doing. That's God's plan. Why do we need to understand this first? Well, behind every situation and circumstance in our life, this is what God is working towards, that Christ would be head of all. 
He wants Jesus to be recognised as Lord of all things and all things brought into line under him. That is always what God is doing in any and every circumstance. So as we're seeking guidance and we ask, well, what does God want? Well, actually interwoven in the detail of everything is that purpose, that Christ should be head of all. Now, that is a necessary but not sufficient answer. It's necessary, though, because if we miss that, we miss everything. This is what God wants. This is what God is working towards. That Christ should be head of all things. But come on, Chris, what about us? What does God want for me and for my life? Well, again, we might not think about it as guidance, but it is essential that we get our heads around it. We see it in the second part of that passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. What does God want from us there? Well, God wants faith. Faith and repentance. Those two ideas that we saw this morning, we haven't planned it, but they were there in Mark 1, 15. Faith and repentance. In light of Jesus being made head of all, we need to trust him and turn from our rebellion against him. We're to have faith and repentance. And we notice in the Bible that there are both things that God grants, but we must do. God grants them, but we still need to do them. That is our part. In any and every situation, what does God want us to do? He wants us to trust him and turn from our sin. That's what God wants us to do, faith and repentance. There's more to say, but here is one simple angle to look at guidance. And whatever else we say uh, this evening, this will still be true. In any and every circumstance, God is working to make Christ head of all. And our response in any and every circumstance is to trust him and to turn from our sin. That is always the right answer. Whatever the question we're asking, whatever the guidance issue we're looking at, God is always working to make Christ head. And we are always to be turning in faith and repentance to him. So when you woke up this morning, what is God doing? He's working towards Christ being head. What does God want me to do today? Well, he wants me to trust him and turn from sin. But is that all? Is that it? Well, in one sense, we could stop there, because that is a big answer, isn't it? But God has told us more. So secondly, that's the, uh, our part and God's part, but secondly, how does God guide? How does God guide? Well, there are two main ways that the Bible talks about God's guidance in our life. The first is sovereign control. Sovereign control. So think about Jesus' death on the cross. Acts 2, 22 to 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here it tells us that God's plan was that Jesus be crucified. But wait, wasn't it Judas's decision to betray him? 
Wasn't it the Pharisees and the Herodians who planned to crucify Jesus? Wasn't it Pilate who in turn let the crowd decide? Wasn't it the crowd who called for Jesus rather than for Barabbas? Well, yes, it was. It was all those things. But God was working behind the scenes to bring about his sovereign purposes. Unseen there, but actually working history to bring about his plan. Or think about Joseph. So Genesis 50, uh, verses 19 and 20. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? This is speaking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That was Joseph's take on what had happened. The brothers had made a terrible decision to sell their brother into slavery. And yet God was at work in the background achieving his good purposes. What is the relationship between what God wanted and what actually happened? Well, what God wanted happened, despite what the people wanted to happen. There is a 100% correlation. What God wants, God gets. Or one way to think about it is as God as composer. He is ultimately the one writing the script. He's the one who chooses the course of history. He's the one working behind the scenes in our lives to achieve his plan. But God does not reveal the details of this plan to us. We'll come on to why in a minute. But that's the first way that God guides. He controls, he gets his way. The second way is conscious cooperation. So God's sovereign control and then our conscious cooperation. God asks us to be involved. Here's an example. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. Uh, verses 2 to 5 I'll read. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion or lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What is God's will for your life, for our lives? That we be sanctified. So what is our part? What does God want us to do? But he tells us, avoid sexual immorality, control our bodies. That's our cooperation, isn't it? How about this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There he's telling us what God's will is. He wants us to pray. He wants us to rejoice. He wants us to give thanks. That's his will for our lives. He's cooperating with us. And it's not just those passages that mention God's will explicitly. How about this? Ephesians 4 verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What does God want me to do in this particular circumstance? But he tells us he wants me to be kind and forgiving. Our conscious cooperation is there. So if we go back to the orchestra imagery, this is like God as the conductor directing the orchestra as to what they should do. And our responsibility is to follow the conductor, to do what he says. 
So God has two ways of working, two wills, so to speak. A secret will, where he is working behind the scenes through all circumstances, even our sin, to bring about good. And then secondly, his revealed will. What he's told us to do, what he's told us what he wants, he's revealed it. We do not know God's secret will, his working behind the scenes, only his purpose in it in very broad brushstrokes, that he's working to make Christ head of all. But we don't need to work out God's secret will. And God doesn't ask us to work out his secret will. Why? Because his secret will will happen anyway. And we're not told to do his secret will, but only what he's revealed. Why is this important? Well, think back to Joseph and his brothers. Was it God's will for them as they considered whether to, sorry, what was God's will for them as they considered whether to sell their brother into slavery? What did God want? Well, there are two answers, aren't there? His secret will was that Joseph should be sold to go on ahead and rescue them in years to come. But his revealed will was that they should love their brother. Yes, it's before the law, but they are the example of Cain and Abel at least. So if they were seeking guidance on what to do in that circumstance as they try and decide whether to sell their brother, what would you tell them? Are we right to sell our brother? Well, the answer surely would have been no. No. On what planet would it be right to sell your brother? On what planet would that be the right decision to make? Was Judas right to betray Jesus? No. Were the crowd absolved of their responsibility because it was God's plan to hand Jesus over? No. The details of his secret plan are secret for a reason. Because otherwise, God becomes the author and promoter of sin. Not the one who turns our sinful ways into good outcomes, do you see? We don't have to know his secret will. We don't need to know his secret will. We're to do what he's told us to do. So what do we do when we have a decision to make? We look at what God has actually said. What God has actually told us that he wants us to do. That is what God wants us to do, to listen to what he has said. So next, the God who speaks. We see in Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, that God has spoken in all sorts of different ways. So think through the scriptures. He's spoken through divine beings, through dice, through dreams, through donkeys, through dead sheep's fleeces. He's spoken through prophets and pillars of clouds and plaster on walls and plants on fire, thinking of the burning bush. But how does the author of Hebrews say God speaks to us now? Well, he tells us there in Hebrews at 1 that God has spoken to us in his Son. And thinking about the way that Hebrews works, we're supposed to see that this is superior to what went before. The whole point of Hebrews is that what we have in Jesus is better than what we had before. And yet so often we see in Hebrews, we chase after the inferior. And the same is true when we look at guidance. God has spoken to us in his son, but we seek after the old ways. And we pick our favourites too, don't we? Fleeces are popular in some circles, you know, laying down fleeces and trying to make decisions that way. Dreams and visions in others. 
I'm still waiting for uh, donkeys that are talking to become a sort of favourite. Not so much in any circle at the moment do we wait for donkeys to talk, sort of hang around them or anything like that. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that these things can't or don't happen. What I'm saying is that they're not as good as what we have in Christ and in his word. So much so that the scriptures tell us to subject prophets, dreams, visions, all those things to scripture, to the Bible. They come under what we have now. Yet so often when it comes to guidance, we suddenly seek the things that aren't as good or reliable as what we have every day in Christ. So think about Gideon and his fleeces. He lays down fleeces to try and get God's will, so to speak, and and people still go back to that kind of thing. But that's Gideon's idea if you read it, not God's. In the account, God's spoken to him audibly and told Gideon what to do. Gideon still goes ahead and asks for these fleeces. It's actually a sign of a lack of faith by Gideon, not commendable activity. In the end, he only eventually does what God has told him when he overhears a dream that one of his enemies had about a barley loaf rolling down a hill. That's what convinces Gideon. He's not a model for Christian guidance. That God graciously chooses to acquiesce to what Gideon asks is not the point. He's not an example to follow. And yet it turns up in Christian circles to this day. David Wilkerson uh, wrote his famous book, The Cross and the Switchblade, the true story of revival amongst American gangs in the 1950s. I read it as a teenager. The story really starts with him trying to decide whether to sell his television and use the time for prayer. This is what he writes. Then I put another fleece before the Lord, one which was destined to change my life. I made it pretty hard on God, it seemed to me, because I really didn't want to give up my television. Jesus, I said, I need some help deciding this thing. So here's what I'm asking of you. I'm going to put an ad in the paper. And if you're behind this idea, let the buyer appear right away. Let him appear within an hour, within half an hour, after the paper gets on the streets. A guy rings 29 minutes after he places the ad. And the rest, as they say, is history. But what if the guy had rung at 31 minutes past? Would it no longer have been a good idea to get rid of his television and use the time to pray? He obviously knew it would be a good idea, otherwise he wouldn't have been praying about it. But was that really a great way to go about it? Surely it would still be a good idea, even if the guy had rung up later on. So how could he have decided in a better way? How can we go about this? Well, I want to suggest uh, three categories of guidance. Three categories of guidance. When faced with big decisions in life, it's helpful to work out what kind of decision it is we're making. Firstly, there are matters of righteousness. That's when we're choosing between right and wrong. What do I mean? So think about it this way. Is it God's will for me to steal my neighbour's car? No. Is it God's will for me to marry a non-Christian? No. Is it God's will for me to start a career as a bank robber? No. These are matters of righteousness. It's about choosing between sinning and not sinning. And most of us are quite sure about this category. 
we don't, uh, if anything, need help other than to get to know God's word a bit better so that we know what he wants. And we can be confident here that when we read it, we know God's will in this area. Because God will never, never guide you into sin. I repeat, God will never guide you into sin. God never makes you the exception. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from sin. We need to choose not to sin because God has told us not to. It might seem simple in this way in terms of guidance, but there are a lot of conversations that I've had over the years when people tell me that they're seeking God's will and it comes down to this. Often I've found that this happens when someone knows what they should do, but they want to do something else. They hope there'll be a sign or a vision or a random verse in the Bible to justify what they want to do. But in most cases, scripture is clear and they just don't want to do it. But that's the the first case. If If it's sin or not sin, we just need to get on and not sin. Do what God says. The second area is matters of good judgment. Choosing between good and best, wise and unwise. This is the category most of us get caught up in. This is the, should I marry Chris or Alex? This is, what job should I take? This is, should I take up golf or tiddlywinks in my retirement? But here's the great news. In these areas, you're free. It's not uh, the first, if it's not in the first category, then you're actually free to make the decision. Think to where we began. God has made his plan for the universe known, and our responsibility should be faith and repentance. Our priorities as believers in our free decisions should still be God's priorities to bring all things under Christ, but they're decisions that we make in wisdom. The Bible calls this wisdom. So I'm free to work as a marine biologist, but it might not be the wisest choice if I have more contact with dolphins than with non-Christians. I might be free to go on an all-inclusive holiday to the Dominican Republic, but it might be wiser to go to France and give the extra money to church. You're free to marry and devote yourself to raising godly children, or you're free not to marry and devote yourself to God's work. In your own time, have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and see Paul apply this principle in that area. God's secret will will happen anyway. But our conscious cooperation part is to make the wisest decisions that we can. It might mean restricting ourselves for the sake of the gospel as we seek to love our brothers and sisters. But we are free to make those decisions. We are not sinning. We're not spoiling God's plan for our life. And this is an area where there's been a lot of controversy over the last couple of years. Church leaders trying to treat these wise and unwise decisions as right versus wrong decisions. Trying to control where people go on holiday, or who people spend their time with, or who they marry. But we are free in these decisions. Leaders can advise, they can provide helpful wisdom, but in the end, the decisions are down to us. And I think this is why we find this one so tricky. In one sense, we want the decisions to be taken out of our hands. We want the writing in the sky that tells us, take this job, or send them to the nursing home. It becomes easier then, and we can actually blame God if it goes wrong, can't we? 
Like David Wilkerson, when he had to go and explain to his family that they would have no TV, he could say, well, God told me. But instead, this forces us to make our own decisions. God treats us as grown-ups who can make our own choices, and we live with the consequences. And this is liberating, isn't it? We can't miss God's will. We can't mess it up. But at the same time, the responsibility then lies with us, which means that we need to think through things seriously. God has given us renewed minds, enlightened by the Holy Spirit, to do just that. Yet actually, we tend to want to switch off our brains and look for a sign or lay down a fleece in our head. But God wants us to use wisdom in line with what he has revealed in the Bible. So those are matters uh, of wise and unwise. And then finally we have matters of triviality. These are areas where we just need to get on with choosing. Uh, which includes more than you'd think. So should I marry Christina or Alexandra? Well, if they're both lovely, godly, mature Christian women who are prepared to marry you, if you could work either equally well with either of them for the gospel cause, then actually pray and ask one to marry you. <laughs> That's what it takes. I know that sounds shocking, but there's no reason to faff about. You can't spoil God's plan as long as both options are equally wise. And if they're equally wise, then just go for it. What about jobs? If there's no difference between two jobs, then choose one and own your decision. God has got the big picture stuff. You're not missing out. Nursing homes. Does God want me to send my spouse to the Sunnydale nursing home or the Sunny Fields nursing home? Well, if there's no difference between them, then just choose one. The point is not that God doesn't care about these decisions, as I was told as a young Christian. In fact, actually, these could be the really important decisions that God uses to, to change our lives. But we can't know that, so we just get on with cheating. We're not going to thwart God's plans. We're not going to end up on planet, uh, plan X, Y, Z. But that also means then, where you are now is where God wants you. Sometimes you get the teaching, oh, well, you know, God wants me somewhere else, you know, and I've gone the wrong place. But God wants you where you are now. It may not be next week or next year where he wants you, but you are where you are in his sovereign control. He has put you here now in the position that you're in. And God cares more about how you act in the situation you're in now than where you're going next. So the Bible addresses questions about things like, how can I be a good employee, whatever my job? Or how can I be a good boss? How can I be a good husband or wife? How can I be a good daughter or son? The Bible has far more to say about living as we are now and living well for him than it does about what we should do next. And that should give us a clue as to what God wants. He wants us to live for him now, whatever decisions we've taken or will take. So when faced with a decision, let's think it through. Does the Bible say it's right or wrong? And from there, from what I know about God's purposes, is the word, uh, in his word, is this wise or unwise? And if there's no difference, then let's just get on with choosing. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do guide us. Father, thank you that you treat us as grown-ups. And Father, pray that you would help us to use our renewed minds 
as we look into your word to make wise decisions. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.